Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the Resilience Advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council and Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly Slow and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields, such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 2 making resilience cool. Tomato, tomato. Have you heard about that one, Evan? Don't you mean tomato, tomato? No, not that one. It's a new phrase people use to convey that something is bad, like throwing tomatoes at a stage. I need to stay on top of these new phrases so I don't fall behind the trends. I guess this is how it is with resilience too. We have to keep the message fresh. How can we make resilience cool? Well, in my interview with Leslie Chapman Henderson, she advises to speak about resilience in a way that empowers people to choose resilience and doesn't scare them. Check out our interview. Leslie Chapman Henderson is the founder and CEO of Flash, the Federal Alliance for Safe Homes. In Evan's interview with her for the Resilience Advantage series, she brought up some good ideas about how to establish resilience as the new social norm. Here's Leslie Chapman Henderson. We need transparency in the marketplace so that the renter comes asking for the resilient building. And once that happens, the landlord and the marketplace will respond because if there are choices between a resilient place to rent and one that's dangerous, the the logical place is that they're gonna choose the more resilient. One of our research partners that we've worked with for 20 years has been telling us forever that we have to stop worrying so much about why we win. He said, you know, if you make it cool, you can get a lot accomplished in society on the heels of something being considered cool. It's just human nature. So we don't have to turn every prospective um, renter or home buyer into an expert. We just need to help them understand that this is a new social norm and it's a fair expectation that you should live somewhere safe. And so we're working very hard to resist the temptation to over-educate, over-inform things like rating systems or just simple checklists. It's all about the checklist, and that's what we have found works for people. Just, just tell me what I need to find out so that I could take care of myself, it's personal, and then it tends to work. So to get people to prioritize resilience in building, we just need to make it seem like the social norm? This reminds me of when I found out Apple's plan of giving elementary schools Macs. Apparently, this ingrains into elementary school students that Apple products are the way to go. So when they grow up, they have a bias towards Apple products. I fell into this trap myself. Does this mean we need to start ingraining resilience into the minds of elementary school students? In most cases, awareness of how well your home is built or not built comes after a disaster event, either one that you're affected by or that you witness maybe on television. And so that is the post-disaster awareness, which we work very hard to leverage and turn into policy improvements and other 
um, good decisions. But what we're really after is awareness that's high during what we call the blue sky times before the disaster strikes. So um, it's really critical to get people's attention in the right way before they're affected, but we've learned a lot about the do's and don'ts of how that works. We know it's not a good idea to try to scare people into good decision making. Just our human nature is such that we're gonna check out we're gonna just tune out and we're gonna walk away from anything that's just too scary, especially if it's a low probability event. They're just gonna say, you know, that's not gonna happen to me. I'll get there if I ever need to. So our formula is to instead empower them with achievable actions, affordable decisions, and information that they can then turn into good decisions. In our Disney experience, when we partnered and we're in Disney for eight years, what Disney would say is to make people the hero of their own story. We put them in the driver's seat using good information. We do a lot of risk communication research to make sure we're messaging it just right. And um, eventually we get to a place where we can then turn around and test to, to validate the success of the different ways to message, um, especially about things like building codes. How can renters understand the risk of a building? Is it really their responsibility to understand it if they're not purchasing the house themselves? We give renters questions to ask. This is what we want you to ask your landlord about the building that you're gonna be living in. And we talk about everything from structure to the age of the building, and then things like power outage we have found if we can have the power outage conversation um, the renters really want to know about that the prospect of being without wi-fi <laughs> is almost more frightening because it's so real um, and so that's become a little bit of a of a, a way to broker conversation with renters where are you going to go to charge your cell phone and use wi-fi tomatoes Poor Wi-Fi connection is the worst. We rely so much on the internet and Wi-Fi connection these days, especially with the pandemic and how everything got moved online. Without a good internet connection, we could not log into Zoom for a class or to see our families. Having the conversations with renters is important for several reasons. One is it's an entry point for future homeowners in many cases, and two, they're often in a position to make choices. And it also helps our building owners see that it's important to the renter and it's important to them. A lot of large multifamily housing um, complexes require the renters to have insurance. So we also push the idea of, you know, you have to have insurance and it's a requirement, so what are they gonna do? And what information can you learn from them? So, you know, depending on if it's a question of um, storm surge evacuation zone, um, you know, where in the building do you go in a tornado? Recent tornadoes point up an excellent example of why renters need to pay special attention to this topic. As a generation, some of the younger renters are fairly um, happy and vocal and outgoing about making sure they're living safely, and they're not too shy to ask. This leads me to question, could building ratings become a new determining factor for renters to consider when they're looking for a place? I think that rating and helping people understand the potential performance of their building that they're either renting or buying, living in, working in, 
and, and giving them that way, that, that calculus to figure out the potentials there is fundamentally the only thing that is ever going to help society get engaged on building performance. In America, we rate everything. This is what we do. We measure, whether it's our schools, um, whether it's our cholesterol, you know, everything we do in this country is about a scorecard because it's the easiest way to transfer an understanding up and down of how things are going to go. And so I think rating buildings and what the U.S. Resiliency Council is doing to give that tool to the public, whether it's renters or owners, is essential. Uh, the, you know, in our work for 21 years, from the beginning, everyone has agreed we need a way to rate that's universal and understandable. So we're very, very excited about the ability to have that tool and share it and see it in action. That is so true. Especially when determining what restaurant to eat at, we always check Yelp to see the restaurant's ratings. How many stars do they have? And then we check out the reviews to see what other people think about the place. And in a way, to see if the restaurant is cool. The cornerstone of resilience and surviving and coming back from disaster starts with building codes. They're not the fun part for a lot of folks, but it is the foundation of resilience. So for many years, um, those of us in this movement have lamented that the public isn't engaged or supportive of or committed to building codes. So several years ago, we finally um, decided, let's test our assumptions and then let's build a, a communication campaign that we can talk to the public about building codes in a way that's relevant to them. We began a research effort through qualitative focus groups and then quantitative testing of um, impressions, perceptions, assumptions by the public about building codes. And we learned and proved what we already thought, which is this, the public is not worried about building codes. I wonder why the public is not worried about building codes. Is it because they know that there are people who are more worried about it, so they don't have to worry? I guess this brings me to the fact that each and every person has different priorities based on their background. How can we appeal to the majority of the population? The reason they're not worried is because they're certain, they're wrong, but they're certain that somebody else in a leadership position is worried about building codes and is making sure that they're going to be safe. And then when we tested, what would you say if you found out you didn't have a building code? we realize we have a lot to work with there because this public in this country was outraged at that idea. We then went on to test the idea of how do we communicate about building codes? And the word confidence and the concept of confidence became the center pin of how we need to have this conversation in this country. We need the public to understand, and based on our testing and validation, they do understand that a building code is your means of being confident in how your building is built, whether it's your home, your school, your place of worship, or, or your place of employment. So this idea turned into a new campaign, and it's an effort called No Code, No Confidence. But then we had to have a solution, too. So the solution is called Inspect to Protect. And inspect2protect.org is the first of its kind national website where you can go to look at current residential codes in place in your community today. Inspect2protect.org? How did I not know about this? 
This seems like a good resource that could be promoted more to communities at large to raise public awareness. It allows for transparency across the board. It puts the power into the consumer's hands where they have the ability to check the codes on their own without needing to check in with an expert. This is the first time anyone's ever tried to do a public-facing transparency effort on building codes. It's exciting because it's the first time people could take building codes and make them personal. And in all of our work, that's what we've learned as well. If it's not personal about me, my house, my life, it's not gonna get done. So no code, no confidence, Inspector Protect is very exciting. We have tested uh, the preliminary one-year phase of it. We now know what we need to do next, and we're getting ready to gear up. How do we empower people to think about resilience? What incentives might there be that could attract them? So when we talk about how to incentivize what we're after, right, which is a resilient, well-built structure, and there, ergo that community is resilient as well, it's, there's no one thing that will get us there, unfortunately, or we would just have already done that. There's, it's really a basket of different solutions that come together to drive change. Um, and incentives can come in many different forms, and depending on the individual and their situation, different types of incentives work for different people. Tax incentives can work. Um, they can work for developers. Um, tax incentives can work individually through the IRS with things like disaster savings account. So you put money away tax-free to make retrofits to your structure. Tax disincentives have to be eliminated so that you are not penalized because you retrofit your building or your home and then you increased its value and you then incidentally have a higher property tax. Um, pause. It seems wrong to penalize people with higher property taxes for doing the right thing and making their buildings more resilient. You know, we have to kind of comb through all these pieces on tax fronts and find the pieces that work. Communities are different depending on, you know, which piece will work for them and from a time standpoint, are they in a post-disaster mode where people are thinking more about it and if not, how do you get them? On the insurance front, there are some existing incentives that are more macro through the Building Code Effectiveness Grading Schedule. It's a rating factor for insurance. And what we have found on that front is the higher a profile we create for that rating, the more people pay attention. You know, that program for, build for homes is um, put forth by ISO, and it's the same organization that does fire ratings. And fire departments across the country have leveraged those ratings to create resources to advance fire safety. So we, we see BSEGs as able to do the same thing for macro insurance. But on an individual basis, in places like Florida, for example, with hurricanes, if you have a new Florida building code structure, you have a 40% of your premium, you have an option to get a discount on that premium each and every year. So whenever we do a good job helping people see the linkage between having hurricane shutters and every year you get a discount, and after 3.7 years it pays for your shutters, then we win with incentives. How can different parts of the community play a role in making resilience cool? So private sector partnerships with the public and nonprofits like ours are really the very best way to move any cause forward for all kinds of reasons. First and foremost, if we want the best available data 
about the performance of a given category of products. You know, our partners at BASF or Simpson Strong Tire, the ones with the labs like IBHS, the insurance industry, they have the best information about what works, what doesn't, and we have the quickest access to that information through them. The other thing that we have found is that if we look for the intersection between the business interest and the social interest, the scale and the opportunity to move something forward is vastly larger than only doing something because it's the right thing. Okay, there's corporate social responsibility that will move us forward so much. Is there an example of a success story of Flash impacting the community? Did you find some special way of informing people about resilience? So our organization, a lot of our successes come through the public, the private match of our cause. We were in Disney for eight years, giving the message of storm safety, and uh, we reached 5.8 million people. So after we were in Disney for a while, we really wanted to test ourselves against just attendance as a success measure. We brought in an academic partner and we did a one-year survey. And what we found is that when you put people in charge of their own storm story and you make them the hero, they take action, and they did. So it's been a magic formula for us from the beginning, and we would be, I'm not sure how we would have succeeded without them. Wow, this makes it seem like there is a way to make resilience cool. I have to tell Evan about my findings. Evan, I found the magic formula. Leslie was really clear on this. She says that the key is to make people the heroes of their own stories. Yeah, it's a good lesson for people to learn. Leslie makes a very strong case about what motivates the general public. And speaking about the magic formula, you should check out my interview with Patrick Odellini. He shared his expertise and experience on what he sees as the formula for success when informing our communities about resilience. Cool, I am so ready for the next interview. For more resources and information about performance-based design, Leslie Chapman Henderson and Flash, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by USRC and Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, community leaders, talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into Evan's interview with Patrick Odellini, the nation's first chief resilience officer with the city and county of San Francisco, where he talks about his secret sauce for success.